sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about how the media discusses nuclear weapons. Also going to be touching on recent protests inside Puerto Rico and going to be discussing U.S. influence in South African media. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, a few legislative things have happened over the past few days that I think we should pay a little bit more aware of. First, the Inflation Reduction Act passed in the Senate. We know that, which Democrats and are celebrating as a bipartisan victory for the beleaguered Biden administration. Much has been made about Senators Manchin and Cinema's about face in supporting the legislation to get it to pass. But the truth is that the climate provisions are not only insufficient to address the enormity of the issue of climate change we are already facing, the industry most responsible for climate change are actually getting treats in the very same legislation. See, in order for the right-wing Democrats to support the bill, the Inflation Reduction Act includes several provisions that will benefit the fossil fuel industry, such as a pledge to open up new oil and gas leasing in the Gulf of Mexico, a commitment that congressional Democrats and the White House will complete a controversial pipeline carrying gas from West Virginia, and a promise to pursue a separate measure that would ease permitting requirements for fossil fuel facilities, as well as clean energy infrastructures, at least they claim. It also allocates billions of dollars for carbon capture and storage, a technology that many climate advocates say does not address air pollution and other local threats to communities. Friend of the show, Anthony Rogers Wright, Director of Environmental Justice for the nonprofit New York Lawyers for Public Interest, actually resigned from the advisory board of the climate group Evergreen Action on Monday out of frustration with the group's support of the bill. Brother Anthony said he is especially concerned that the agreement to ease permitting requirements for fossil fuel and alleged clean energy facilities could weaken a critical environmental protection law that requires federal agencies to scrutinize the impacts of major infrastructure projects. Black, Latino, and indigenous communities have frequently used the law to contest projects that could have harmed their neighborhoods. But now, with the promise that those permitting requirements will be relaxed, especially for new fossil fuel projects, those communities no longer have this avenue to protect them from the environmental impacts of highly polluting Industries, And I, I feel, Brother Anthony, on this. As much as folks are cheering enthusiastically for this bill's climate provisions, and even those who are less enthusiastic in their support but are saying, well, something is better than nothing, 
I got to ask, are any of those people going to go to the folks in those communities who live in the shadow of these polluting fossil fuel facilities and say, hey, this was the best we could do. Sorry we couldn't do anything meaningful for you this time around. Sorry you and your kids have to live with high rates of asthma, cancer, and polluted groundwater because we were fine with relaxing permit requirements for fossil fuel projects so we could get some kind of climate bill passed. We know they aren't. And this isn't the only bitter compromise in the Inflation Reduction Act, because Section 22008 of the act repeals the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021. And that is important because Section 1005 of the American Rescue Plan provided black, native and other farmers of color debt relief. The emergency relief for farmers of color was passed and signed into law by Biden last year in the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021. National Black Farmers Association President John Boyd met with Biden during the South Carolina primaries to discuss the plight of black farmers, and it was agreed upon that Biden would address black farmer issues. Again, last July, Biden reaffirmed to Boyd that he would have a face time meeting with him to discuss the ongoing struggles and delay of America's black farmers getting the long sought after debt relief. Well, imagine Boyd's bitter disappointment when he discovered that this Inflation Reduction Act repeals the former legislation that provided relief to farmers who were historically discriminated against by the U.S. Department of Agriculture for decades. While those farmers are being served foreclosure notices in a recession with the highest record of input costs in 40 years, while the same administration is sending hundreds of millions of dollars in aid to Ukrainian farmers. Remember that Zoom call where Biden treated all those black lawmakers and leaders so disrespectfully? We told you then that old Jim Crow Joe really does not care about black people. His latest legislative decision sure seemed to confirm that he does not mind throwing us under the bus in order to claim his bipartisan victories. And finally, this week, Biden signed legislation providing $52 billion in subsidies to the semiconductor industry, kicking off what will be one of the largest industrial development programs the federal government has ever administered. The legislation is expected to spur construction of more than half dozen big semiconductor manufacturing facilities in the United States, providing more secure supplies of semiconductors that are so important to modern electronics that they are actually viewed as essential to national security. And this is important considering the U.S.'s recent provocation of China over Taiwan since the world's largest dedicated independent semiconductor manufacturer is Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, or TSMC. The company is so prolific in the global semiconductor supply chain that it produces over 10 million semiconductor wafers per year, every year, with its products used in Apple products from the MacBook Air to the iPhone 12. Was Nancy Pelosi's imperialist trip to Taiwan more about business than about aggression toward China? Oh, absolutely not. It was definitely about war. But keep in mind that the U.S. government is not above going to war over 
business. In fact, that's the whole point of imperialism, to expand capitalist domination all over the globe. No money for health care, no money for housing, no money for student loan debt or education, but plenty of money to try to compete with China to win the semiconductor race, another race with China, by the way, that the U.S. has already lost. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to a By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on. As they say, we are now happy to be joined by Carl Grossman, an author, TV program host and professor of journalism at the State University of New York College at Old Westbury. Carl, thanks so much for joining us. A pleasure to be with you. Absolutely. And uh, Carl, you recently published a piece with fairness and accuracy in reporting that asks what I think is a fundamental and an important question. And that is, why is there more media talk about using nuclear weapons than banning them? And uh, your piece is specifically centered around the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And uh, you note that uh, anti-nuclear group, the Nuclear Ban Treaty Collaborative is engaging in a, a campaign to get more press coverage of the treaty, which, according to them, quote, provides the only pathway to a safe, secure future free of the nuclear threat. And so to begin, Carl, I was hoping you could explain uh, just what is uh, the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons and why uh, do you feel it's it's more deserving of uh, press coverage in this moment? Well, it's it's uh, such an important treaty uh, enacted by the United Nations back in 2017. It entered force in 2021 last year, and it's a legally binding instrument to prohibit nuclear weapons. Uh, it, it would well put that nuclear weapons, call it genie back in the bottle. And in reporting on um, oh, issues of nuclear war in the last several months, uh, this excellent organization that you mentioned, the Nuclear Ban Treaty Collaborative, uh, has looked at uh, whether it's, the treaty is, is noted in various stories, articles about nuclear war, and it hardly is. I mean, uh, they did an analysis of the New York Times, hardly mentioning it all. Uh, they talk about CNN. Uh, they uh, look at national public radio uh, in the United States. Uh, it's like non-existent. It's being ignored in terms of, I mean, if you're talking about nuclear war, also to be reported, I'd say, would be this uh, this key treaty, this important treaty. Uh, my article also notes that the Nexus News database of U.S. newspapers have, uh, here it is, have mentioned, I'm quoting here from my piece, uh, and also this was actually, I'm quoting from the, the collaborative's uh, 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 analysis uh, in my piece. Uh, but here, the Nexus News database 
notes that nuclear weapons have been mentioned, this is in U.S. newspapers, 5,243 times between February 24th when President Putin began talking about their potential use in the invasion of Ukraine, and August 4th, which is like uh, uh, last week, only 43 of those times, those more than 5,000 times, include a mention of the treaty. The great majority of these were letters to the editor or opinion columns. So I, I, I think the press here in the United States is uh, it's not doing its job, the media not doing its its job of informing people that this treaty exists. Now, let me, let me insert right here, though, the United States and Russia and China and the United Kingdom and France, these are the nuclear weapons states, so-called, have not signed on to the treaty. Uh, so the treaty is, is great in, uh, oh, I don't know, in vision uh, and in theory, but until these countries sign on, it really... Uh, uh, it, it doesn't have truly the the force of 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 of, uh, of, of a real international uh, a treaty. But in any case, uh, uh, fairness and accuracy reporting is is a watchdog group on U.S. media, and my piece uh, I think uh, would hopefully cause media to talk about, write about the uh, this treaty. And, you know, not only is the media not talking about this treaty and the need not to uh, resort to using nuclear weapons and certainly not in the conflict in Ukraine or anywhere else in the world, but I feel like the media is also not talking about something that I thought was much more common that the media used to talk about, uh, you know, every once in a while at least, and that is the report from the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. I mean, what, is the media doing any more to talk about the doomsday clock now? Uh, than they uh, have been, especially since uh, that report, the Doomsday Clock report, as it's uh, you know uh, 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 more popularly known, uh, shows that we are much closer to nuclear midnight than we have been for decades. Yeah, well, the the Doomsday Clock of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists and what midnight on the Doomsday Clock represents. Uh, say the uh, the bullet says the bulletin is nuclear annihilation, and in uh, two two thousand and twenty, it was uh, pushed forward to a hundred seconds to midnight, where it's uh, it's remained to today, uh, uh, two thousand and twenty one stays at a hundred seconds to midnight, two thousand and twenty two stays so. I mean, uh, this is the backdrop of the issue of nuclear war. And let me, if I could, talk internationally about the issue of nuclear war. Um, for 20 years, I was at the United Nations on the Commission on Disarmament, Conflict, Resolution, and Peace. Uh, and in, in terms of my representation on the uh, Commission, and also my writings on nuclear technology issues, I've traveled the world. Uh, I've been all over and on, on the lecture circuit in the United States, and uh, I've been in Russia seven times giving presentations uh, on environmental and energy issues 
and the issue of nuclear war. Uh, I remember vividly, this is a few years ago, walking with with a young woman after a lecture in Saratov uh, in, in, in Russia, and she was telling me about how during the Cold War, how she and her friends lived in, in fear that the United States would, would use nuclear weapons and, 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 and bomb Russia. Uh, I just finished a book, uh, co-authored a book, uh, it, it just came out seven, eight months ago, called Cold War Long Island. I live in Cold, Long Island in New York. And we, too, we too live. I went to PS 136 in Queens in New York. They gave us dog tags during the course of the 1950s, dog tags to wear as, as young kids uh, to be identified if, if nuclear war happened. I and mean, we did duck and cover, duck and cover um, exercise, went under our desks. Uh, we lived always in the fear of nuclear apocalypse, uh, that the Soviet Union would bomb us. And then again, I have this experience in Russia that we would have, we would be bombing the uh, now Russia. Are we returning to a new Cold War, or are we on the way, as the bulletin is so concerned about, to a a hot nuclear war? And again, this treaty is critical to, as I mentioned before, put the genie back in the bottle. After World War One, the world became so aware of the horrific nature of chemical weapons that with several treaties, this, these were enacted during the 20s, chemical weapons, chemical war was outlawed. And, and largely that treaty has held. I feel it's, it, it's imperative. It's critical. It's, it's an existential issue that the entire world sign on to the, the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons and put that back in the put that genie back in the bottle, outlaw nuclear weaponry. Yeah, definitely. And Carla, it's certainly our position on the show that that we are, in fact, in the moment of a new Cold War that is dangerously close to becoming a, a, a hot one. And, you know, uh, emanating from that period, uh, there's been this dangerous status quo uh, that, that you talk about in your piece, you know, mutually assured destruction, which basically posits that, you know, one country will not use their nuclear weapons precisely because another country also has uh, nuclear weapons and that they, uh, as the the phrase implies, would mutually destroy each other um, if using them. And so there's like this very uneasy stalemate that's been the status quo um, in terms of the global nuclear issue for uh, uh, years and years and years. And so it, it feels like, honestly, we've, we've been in a dangerous uh, uh, moment uh, for some time now that uh, actually runs the risk of uh, escalating now. And so as such, uh, pieces like this treaty we are uh, discussing become that much more important. But I'm just wondering from your perspective, Carl, why don't you think there's more uh, coverage of these kinds of treaties and what things like the uh, uh, the collaborative is uh, attempting to do here. You know, uh, uh, I mean, you, you broke down the number of mentions of the treaties and things like this within a certain period. And why do you think the coverage has shaped out in that way? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a professor of journalism, been so for and an active journalist, <clears throat> and I've been teaching uh, uh, journalism uh, 
skills and ethics and so forth for a long time. I think it's it's it's, it's at the least laziness uh, that uh, you know uh, uh, media are often very superficial. So they'll report about this threat or that threat uh, without going a little deeper. And what's needed here is some deep, deep journalism. Because it's very important to, to understand now that, um, well, we're at the end of the 77th anniversary of the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and the nuclear weaponry that the United States has, that Russia has, that China, these, these, these weapons are far, far more destructive uh, then uh, those bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And we're talking about, I mentioned the word existential. We're talking about existing on Earth, life existing on Earth. We're talking about truly a, an apocalypse that could occur uh, by mistake, by, uh, by retaliation, for all kinds of reasons. That's why we have to eliminate eliminate nuclear weapons. I mean, when the the atomic scientists who write for and edit the bulletin of atomic science, science uh, talk about uh, nuclear annihilation. They're talking about global suicide. And so uh, absolutely, in writing a story, I would say, just like the collaborative uh, is trying to stress and emphasize and gone to media uh, to, uh, um, to progress, Every time uh, there's a mention, I feel, or at least almost every time, of the, the threat of nuclear war these days, there should be some reference to, however, there was this treaty that was uh, uh, nations, and, uh, over 100 nations at the UN, 122, uh, voted for it in 2017. Now, many nations have signed on uh, uh, and how it's imperative that the U.S., that Russia, that China, and I've been to, for that commission at the U.N. I was on, I've been to China, uh, and, uh, and I've, of course, been to France, and I've been to the United Kingdom. All these nuclear weapons nations that have not signed on really must, for the sake of life on Earth, I mean, I hate to be hyperbolic, but I think I'm being just realistic, Sign on to this treaty and let's 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 abolish nuclear weapons uh, in this world on this planet. Yeah, and I got to say, Carl, I don't think you're being hyperbolic at all. I mean, literally, a nuclear conflict would be a catastrophic event for humanity itself. And the last thing that I wanted to ask you about, Carl, uh, since you mentioned laziness, I'm definitely curious your thoughts on this. As a professor of journalism and someone who's been in this field for so long, I just feel like this really shows the power of media, both in terms of what it says and what it doesn't say. Because my, my honest feeling is that the refusal to cover things like this treaty actually makes these major platforms complicit in a way of sort of intensifying this uh, climate and the dangerous moment that uh, uh, we are living in. But, but how do you see um, the role of uh, journalists and these media platforms uh, uh, having a responsibility really, to uh, cover these sorts of things, particularly in dangerous moments like we're living in right now? Well, sometimes media have to be pushed 
have to be woken up. Take climate change. I, I, I do a, it's a national, in the United States, a nationally aired TV program, Enviro Close Up with Carl Grossman. Google it, watch it, you can watch it online. And I first did a TV show on climate change. This is 30 years ago, 1993, with Ross Gelbspan. He wrote a book, The Heat Is On, interviewed him. But until in the United States, the former Vice President Al Gore uh, did his very important film, uh, uh, An Inconvenient Truth, uh, until other activists from all over uh, actually the world began pressing on climate change, on global warning, warming, that people all over the world begin to understand. And now I think they, they, they understand that uh, climate change is very real. Global warming is happening. And not only must we act on it, but media must focus on it. And media have. I think that kind of groundswell of people from well, the bottom up, from the, from the grassroots, is necessary to have the media do the right thing. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Carl, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about recent protests that have been happening inside Puerto Rico. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Diane Vieira, a political activist with the collective Jornada Se Acabaron Las Promesas. Diane, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me today. Absolutely. And uh, Diane, uh, recently we've been seeing uh, some pretty large protests inside Puerto Rico, thousands of people that uh, uh, took to the streets, uh, both protesting a company called Luma and uh, demanding that Governor Pedro Rafael Pierre Luisi cancel uh, the contract that the country has with Luma. And this all is connected to issues of electricity and other things that are happening inside the country right now. And so I was hoping you could help us understand what exactly is behind uh, these recent protests against Luma. You know, what is Luma really? And, and how does it relate to electricity in Puerto Rico? Okay, of course. Um, we can start by talking about what is Luma, which is the energy company that was chosen uh, by the Fiscal Control Board, together with the governor of Puerto Rico, to be in charge of the operations of parts of uh, the electric grid, the parts that uh, includes transmission, distribution of energy, which was previously carried out by the public, the Puerto Rico uh, Electric Power Authority, which is the name uh, given to the public uh, corporation, or short, PREPA. And it's a joint venture between three companies, a Canadian one called ASCO, Quanta Services, uh, based in Texas, and IEM, which is an expert in the management of federal funds. Uh, and Luma was really created 
to manage Puerto Rico's uh, electric grid, uh, created five months before the, the contract was signed in June 2020, actually. And it took over officially in June of 2021. And this is what Luma is. Uh, Luma's in charge uh, due to corporate welfare and the vision of the Fiscal Control Board of implementing the policy of privatization and selling of public assets to obligate this nation to pay a debt that is not legitimate. Yeah, definitely. I was just, you know, wondering how uh, Puerto Rican officials have responded to the demands of the protesters and uh, uh, their action against this uh, uh, energy company. Of course. Um, first of all, the recent protests against Luma are part of what's been a continuous opposition of diverse sectors of the Puerto Rican society to this austerity uh, policies and measures and the privatization. Uh, they are a result of the frustration of the people who see how local governments allow for millions of concessions to benefit corporations. There are also uh, the protests of what people are doing in protesting because they're demanding the end of the contract, because of also bad performance of Luma, continuous blackouts, low voltages, explosions of electric subunits, continuous increases of electric tariffs, and the government officials, they simulate that they are listening, uh, that they uh, are uh, concur with the people, that the contract needs to be canceled, but that's, they're all also in bed with Luma. Uh, and the governor, Pierre Luisi, is the strongest supporter he insists that in not canceling the contract because it is part of an imposed colonial plan to profit foreign corporations. Yeah, and I'm also wondering how this issue with the uh, electrical grid, Diane, and uh, the unreliability and also just this this series of rate hikes that have happened in Puerto Rico well uh, as well around this. How has this affected the lives of people inside Puerto Rico? Oh, my gosh, in many, many ways. The unreliability uh, makes it so so vulnerable, for instance, to hurricanes and other climate-related issues. Uh, many Puerto Ricans urgently need efficient energy systems to keep their health treatments, for instance. People that need dialysis, uh, medications to cover temperature for people with diabetes. For instance, recently, like last week, uh, in the Centro Medico, the main public hospital in Puerto Rico, uh, they, they were twenty at least like twenty hours uh, without without electricity, a twenty hour blackout, and as a consequence, at least one person died during the blackout. Although neither the governor nor the authorities want to admit it. And besides that, well, small businesses, medium Puerto Rican owned businesses, have to close or limit their operation hours because of these blackouts, because of. Oh, and also closing because of the high tariffs. I mean, we've already uh, gone through a seventh increase in a year, which represents seventy percent rise in in in, in consumer bills. Um, in many in many many ways, and it's a very discouraging and worrying situation. 
Yeah, definitely sounds like it. And of course, you know, when people's health uh, is impacted by the inability to rely on energy, that is a deadly situation, as you pointed out. I wonder, how is the Fiscal Control Board and the PROMESA Act connected to Luma and other issues on the island that people have been uh, protesting about over quite uh, quite a while? Totally connected. Um, the Fiscal Control Board is the mechanism put in by Congress to PROMESA Act to manage Puerto Rico's debt by pushing an austerity agenda that includes the privatization of public assets, like the electric grid. Um, the Fiscal Control Board has been brought to our nation to continue the implementation of these neoliberal policies, the privatization and austerity measures to extract the wealth of our country and allocate it to banks and financial institutions in the U.S. So Puerto Ricans are forced to pay a debt, which is actually illegitimate, illegal, and odious. The Fiscal Control Board prom- promoted and imposed that Luma contract uh, be uh, put, it, put into effect above the will of the people. The government, as I said before, is in bed with, with this. And while this is happening, through the control board, uh, other, other issues are uh, affected or other parts of our lives are affected, like the continuous reduction of our pensions, the cutting of the funding to public education. Uh, public schools have been closing and sold to, in, to people that have other interests for those buildings, for instance. Um, our university, state university, which is the most prestigious has, has had funds cut as well, and also health care, among other essential services. So this is um, the, impos- the imposition of the Fiscal Control Board uh, is really uh, putting our lives in detriment. Yeah, definitely. And I'm wondering, uh, Diane, because I feel like we saw these um, larger protests uh, around uh, uh, late July. And I'm just curious where things stand uh, with the the movement today and how that's been unfolding in Puerto Rico concerning these demonstrations against Luma. Well, actually, uh, people will continue taking the streets. People will continue protesting um, because we believe that the contract will be canceled. We will continue on the streets denouncing, protesting, and also building from communities of the alternatives that, that would lead us to a better future. So the, it's, a, the, it's various sectors in society that are uh, sure that this is a bad deal for Puerto Rico, and we, are, we will continue on the streets, most definitely, and force the cancellation of this uh, contract. Uh, and we believe that this is the only way. People on the street exerting pressure from all sectors and demanding that alternatives be implemented, uh, other alternatives be implemented. In Jornadas Acabaron Las Promesas, which is the collective where I serve, truly believes that the only way to defend the people's rights, the people's rights is organizing ourselves understanding the root causes of the issues, take on the streets to demonstrate our ideas and demand for a more dignified life. 
Yeah, and just a moment ago, Diane, you, you made reference to the colonial character of the relationship between Puerto Rico and the United States. And it really seems like that dynamic in that history is a big part of not only contributing to this issue with Luma, but to uh, a, a lot of different issues that we see uh, happening in Puerto Rico, both uh, uh, today and historically. <clears throat> and I'm also wondering specifically in terms of uh, Governor uh, Pedro uh, Rafael uh, Pierre Luisi, and I remember that not that long ago, there was you know a massive uh, movement in the streets to oust uh, the former uh, Governor Roselli. And uh, it seems that the electricity issue may have been just one of many, really, uh, that the people of Puerto Rico felt was not being addressed in the way that they should by the government of Pierre Luisi. And so, you know, what other issues Issues, uh, do we see sort of emanating from uh, uh, sort of the Pierre Luisi administration that you see as sort of connected to uh, uh, Puerto Rico's ongoing colonial status? Well, um, definitely the situation with public education and health care, the colonial status in Puerto Rico, and it's not only Pierre Luisi, it's been both parties that have been administering this colony. Uh, Pierluisi is just uh, one of the actors, uh, uh, but it's been both both administrations and really the the, the, the colony uh, issues like uh, education uh, reduction in pensions. I mean that's a really big issue, and a lot of union tra- trade uh, union trades or trade unions have been on the streets. Uh, the teachers have been on the streets. Uh, uh, advocating for better uh, labor conditions, uh, for the administration to respect the pension agreements uh, that are, are all, all in this, at this moment uh, uh, being cut, pension cuts. So basically the essential services, teachers that are on essential services uh, have been uh, the most... Um, important issues that people have taken to the streets. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, uh, ultimately, Diane, it's just clear that in a, a number of ways, this very uh, dynamic, this ongoing colonial status of Puerto Rico um, has a pretty um, broad and, and seems a rather deep impact on the livelihood and conditions of Puerto Ricans. And as such, I think it will be good to continue to see that movement that you're describing uh, continue to march on in the streets. But we're going to leave it there for now here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sp- in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about U.S. influence in South African media. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Ajit Singh, an investigative journalist with the No Cold War Project. Ajit, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Ajit, as 
We definitely seem ensconced in a new Cold War era in global politics with the U.S. Uh, uh, stoking open conflict with countries like Russia and China. Uh, we've seen recently in the public discourse in South Africa, uh, there's a narrative that there's a kind of undue Chinese influence in South Africa, uh, South African media. Uh, but what I think is being left out here is the actual role of the United States and regime change institutions influencing media in South Africa in reality. And uh, you recently co-authored a piece about this with Roscoe Palm for uh, the monthly review entitled Manufacturing Consent, How the United States Has Penetrated South African Media. And this issue is actually one that goes back uh, quite a bit, Ajit. And so to begin, I think maybe just to give some uh, historical grounding, what has a U.S. influence in South African media looked like historically, and how do we see that connected to what's happening today? Well, as, as you said, this is an issue that has, has deep roots, um, as in many places around the world, particularly in the global south. Uh, during the first Cold War, uh, these countries were often um, seen as like battlegrounds for influence uh, by the United States in terms of its uh, Cold War foreign policy agenda vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union and other forces that were seen as uh, friendly to the Soviet Union or social movements. Um, and so Washington very often viewed uh, dynamics in countries around the world through this lens. And so uh, in the 1980s, uh, amid uh, when during the apartheid era in South Africa, the United States government, according to its internal documents from the time, uh, was funneling hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, to South Africa not to, for example, promote uh, an anti-racist campaign or anything like this, but funneling this money to South African media organizations to, in its own words, uh, combat the influence of Marxism amongst the, the black population. And so this document, uh, which is from 1986, uh, in it, U.S. officials talk in depth about uh, how they're going to create a, a biweekly feature in local newspapers called How Democracy Works, targeting uh, the black population in South Africa um, and recruiting all sorts of journalists and editors and writers to, to contribute to it um, so as to pursue and, and promote a, a narrative or ideology that was conducive to its interests. Um, and unfortunately, as as you mentioned in your introduction, as we're returning to a sort of like Cold War division uh, on the global global stage, we're seeing um, that this sort of cultivating of media and spheres of influence by the United States has not ended and is, in fact, intensifying. Yeah, it definitely has not ended because we talk about the influence of the National Endowment for Democracy all the time when there is unrest that we know is uh, fomented and supported by the United States. But interestingly enough, uh, the National D Endowment for Democracy uh, looms large in uh, this piece and in this history. So can you tell us you know, where this organization came from, uh, who started it, and what does it really do? What's it been doing in South Africa? 
Yeah, so so the National Endowment for Democracy was created under the Reagan administration um, in 1983. And so every year it receives an annual appropriation from the State Department um, through which it uh, issues thousands of grants around the world and hundreds of millions of dollars every year. Um, it was created in the 80s after the experiences in the previous decades uh which had tainted the reputation of the Central Intelligence Agency, which had previously um, uh, headed these sorts of funding or support operations around the world. And of course, the Central Intelligence Agency is still in existence and active, but the National Endowment for Democracy was sort of a rebrand of these sort of foreign funding operations. Um, And the National Endowment for Democracy sort of tries to uh, explicitly sort of uh, presents itself as a non-governmental or non-profit independent foundation, um, despite the fact that it is a U.S. government entity. Um, and it's trying to, it, it appears to be an attempt by the United States to use this sort of ambiguous non-profit independent language, no matter how dishonest it might be, because this ambiguity makes it a lot more difficult for for them to be criticized for their activities abroad, because they can say, well, we're not, this isn't an official U.S. government agency, this is an independent entity. And so the the media campaign in the 1980s uh, was initiated and funded by the National Endowment for Democracy a few years after its creation. And at, in our present times, four decades later, the the NED has mushroomed into a global financing empire of sorts. Uh, it issues uh, in the past 10 years, according to its financial filing, it's, it's issued over a billion dollars in grants worldwide. Um, and it's active in over 100 countries um, and including South Africa, um, where it has been financing the uh, one of the main publications in the country called the Mail and Guardian, which is based in Johannesburg, to create a digital publication to monitor misinformation and disinformation in the continent. And so um, the NED is, is still active, although these, these stories are often very complex because uh, it, there's not usually just like one tie that leads you directly to the United States government. It's more of, of a web of influence through which through which the U.S. is able to exert soft power in different regions. Uh, and, it, and this sort of more ambiguous relationship makes it a lot more difficult for ordinary people um, to understand um, the different actors that are involved in shaping for example, a news publication that they uh, that they read, or 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 a website that they go to, because oftentimes the funds are being funneled through a variety of civil society organizations and NGOs, and it just makes it very complicated to parse. Yeah, it definitely that web is uh, incredibly deep. And that's a part of the insidious nature of all this, Ajit, because when people in the United States, you know, uh, sit down and watch the news and they see, you know, a so-called uh, democracy protest in places like Nicaragua or Hong Kong, they think that they're seeing uh, some kind of uh, grassroots movement when in reality, uh, these are just uh, two examples of how these uh, influence campaigns and regime 
change operations that come from uh, institutions like the NED um, are unfolding really uh, for the interest of Washington and to the detriment of the people of those countries. And it's certainly the same with the media because they can think that they're, um, you know, viewing or consuming some uh, objective, independent media. But in truth, a lot of these platforms are are shot through uh, with money from the NED and some of these other places in this web. And um, and speaking of that, Ajit, like what are some of these media platforms that we're talking about that receive funding from uh, the NED and that are, are a part of this uh, web of influence that is uh, basically doing uh, the ideological work of imperialism? So most recently in 2020 and 2021, the NED issued almost $400,000 in grants to Mail-in Guardian um, and created a new uh, digital publication that's that, uh, issued through WhatsApp and Signal called The Continent, which aims to be a pan-African uh, weekly publication uh, that covers uh, all sorts of issues and is very accessible to ordinary people. You can receive it on your phone um, and uh, so that, that's, that's one of the, the most recent uh, direct activities they've been involved in. More broadly, they've partnered over the past couple decades uh, with U.S. private institutions, in particular the Open Society Foundation and Luminate Group. Uh, Open Society Foundation is a philanthropic foundation uh, founded by George Soros, and Luminate Group is a Philanthropic Foundation founded by the billionaire Piero Midyar, who's also the chief financier of the U.S. media outlet, The Intercept. And the, they, with these private foundations, the NEDs formed a lot of official partnerships for global media development. Most recently, the International Fund for Public Interest Media, which in December uh, 2021, the Biden administration provided a $30 million or announced that it would be providing $30 million uh, seed money grant to help launch it. And this International Fund for Public Interest Media aims to eventually scale up to be able to provide a uh, billion dollars per year in financing for media around the world. And so this this sort of public-private partnership that's developed between Washington and these very powerful, uh, influential private foundations has even muddied the picture Further, um, the NED, uh, in its reports on global media development, has explicitly acknowledged that it seeks to partner with these sorts of private foundations because of their they have greater flexibility to operate in situations where U.S. Uh, government direct funding would be looked down upon or unwelcome for political reasons. Uh, because if you are seen to be funded by a foreign government, that creates a lot of questions and opens you up for criticism about how that is influencing your work and your priorities. Um, and so work by working with these private foundations, um, the United States is able to have a lot more flexibility um, in being able to uh, create spheres of influence without having a direct hand involved and therefore being able to have uh, deniability, plausible deniability of, well, we have no hand in this. These are all private entities. They're not government entities. And so it's the influence of not only the NED's direct rules and direct partnerships with these sorts of private foundations, along with its direct grants to various 
civil society organization and NGOs, but these private foundations themselves have formed uh, huge financial footprints in the global south and also in this specific case in South Africa. Uh, they've issued tens of millions of dollars uh, in recent years to a host of South African media organizations, including the aforementioned Mail and Guardian. Uh, Daily Maverick is another prominent uh, publication. The Daily Vox is a very popular youth uh, media outlet. Uh, Podcasting Network Volume. Um, and the one of the most sort of um, decorated anti-corruption investigative outlets, uh, the Amabungane Center for Investigative Journalism. And this sort of web of ties between public and private actors that seem to have very similar uh, goals, meaning very similar uh, an alignment with Washington's foreign policy, creates a lot of concerning questions um, about how this is shaping discourse amongst seemingly, from the outside, independent media organizations. Yeah, and, you know, that questions about the, uh, the the funding and the influence are extremely legitimate, particularly in uh, the case of the influence on the Mail and Guardian's Pan-African WhatsApp-based uh, publication, The Continent, which is of particular interest to me as a Pan-Africanist. And we talk about the need for international solidarity uh, and Pan-Africanism quite frequently on this show. The grants that may not initially seem to come from the NED and and do, are funneled through these private uh, public partnerships, what impact do these grants have on the actual content that is produced in these publications that receive this money, Ajit? That's a good question. Well, we can, going by the information that we are able to access, uh, which is only part of the story, unfortunately, uh, we see that, for example, in some of these grants from the NEB to uh, the Mail and Guardian, they explicitly mention the creation of this digital publication called The Continent. Um, and they even go so far as specifying uh, themes and specific content that The Continent would publish. I mean, they go so far as to detail a monthly disinformation column and quarterly investigations on disinformation trends in Africa. And of course, we've seen how terms like disinformation and misinformation have uh, a very specific meanings within the context of the U.S. government. It's often a term that's uh, only used to, to as a smear directed towards uh, the supposed influence of their their political adversaries around the world. It's a very um, it, it, it's not a term that's just used objectively uh, to describe. Uh, you know, dishonest activity. It's a very politicized term. And so this raises a concern about by what seems to be very benign, is this going to be a situation through which Washington uh, and U.S. officials are aiming to, uh, if not directly uh, dictate, but uh, influence over time the production of content which is favorable to its foreign policy interests and which targets its political adversaries, whether domestic uh, uh, political forces on the African continent or foreign countries that uh, Washington does not uh, like uh, that are active on the continent and trying to disrupt their relations with countries on, on the African continent. 
for example, Russia and China or other countries. And so that creates a lot of concern. You have these sorts of specific uh, sort of uh, details within grants. But then there's also the bigger concern is that in a lot of countries in the global south uh, and in developing countries, you have very fragile economic circumstances. And so it's not to say that everything is some sort of predetermined plot by, you know, uh, plan makers in Washington, D.C. that's directing every article. But with money comes influence and with and influence can shape decisions. It can shape the themes uh, that an organization or individuals take over time. It can shape which subject matters are focused on and which ones are ignored. And uh, on the individual level, it's po- it's very possible and probably likely that individual employees or journalists are totally ignorant of the situation. But it, it's this web of influence and soft power which is concerning and is not transparent from the level of an ordinary person. And it's very important that we shed a light on this because a lot of people have a very different attitude if they feel that the news they're getting is from a government-funded uh, source or from a supposedly independent-funded uh, source. And their attitude towards it and the questions they have are going to be shaped by whether they know that. And the problem is that a lot of the times it's very difficult. You have to do a lot of research and and following the sort of rabbit hole just to figure out what's actually behind various media outlets. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Ajit, for joining us today. Definitely want to encourage people to go to MRonline.org to check out the article you co-authored, Manufacturing Consent, How the United States Has Penetrated South African Media. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. By any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Thursday, August 11th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices and comrades. That's y'all to reach out and touch us at by any means necessary necessary here in Washington, D.C. You can do that by calling us at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at SputnikNews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.Mave. That's M-A-V-E dot digital. You can listen to us live on your radio dial at 105.5 
1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time each weekday. And we're streaming for your viewing pleasure live right now on Rumble. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by John Jeter, award-winning journalist and foreign correspondent, radio and television producer, bluesologist and decolonizer, and author of the book Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleeced Working People. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Sean. Absolutely. And John, you know, we talk quite a bit here on the show about all the different factors that are impacting the poor, working, and oppressed people, both of this country and this world. And you recently published a piece on Black Agenda Report from your Patreon that, to me, speaks to really uh, ruling class paternalism and how and arrogance, really, and how people from these elite institutions uh, basically make the decisions that really has wrecked uh, uh, the global economy and has really ravaged the living conditions of people all over the globe, including uh, right here in the United States. Now, uh, the title of this piece is We Don't Need No Stinking Harvard, Why the Crew and Not the Captain Will Save America. And you begin the piece uh, with a personal story talking about how you were reporting in Mozambique around uh, issues dealing with uh, uh, their cashew industry that I think is a good example of this. So if you wanted to break that down a, a little bit, John, and talk about how it connects uh, to this broader issue about how these, you know, highfalutin uh, people from these uh, uh, Ivy League schools and whatnot make so many decisions for people that they really just don't know anything about and uh, how it contributes to uh, uh, so much of the suffering that we're seeing today. Yeah, no, it really is um, the, the rebar of our suffering, working class people, generally speaking around the world, and, and black people uh, in particular. Uh, it is this uh, autarky uh, by these elites, many of them who have been trained at Harvard and Yale, the Ivy League, Stanford, schools like this. My story, I talked about going to Mozambique in the year 2000 when I was a reporter, a foreign correspondent for the Washington Post, and uh, doing a story on their cashew industry. Uh, they process cashews. Cashews have to be, you have to take the shell off and then bottle and package them, of course. And that's a fairly elaborate process, and it adds value to the product. And that's how uh, uh, economies grow with these value-added processes that you have to you know, add to uh, agriculture, uh, coffee, uh, anything. Um, and so what had happened was that uh, Mozambique, which was recovering from a civil war, a 16-year civil war, uh, their cashew groves had been damaged. And so they had to slap uh, export tax on these cashews uh, so that they couldn't be sold abroad because vendors in Vietnam, processors in Vietnam had more money to spend. They could raise the price and they could afford to buy more than could the local processing plants in Mozambique, in the capital, mostly of Maputo. Uh, so they stopped this export tax. And of course, the IMF and the World Bank was in the process of basically 
you know, financializing the entire global economy. And Mozambique was not immune to that. And so they demanded that in exchange for these loans from the IMF and the World Bank and these other international lenders, that Mozambique lift this tariff, that it repeal this tariff. And Mozambique was reluctant to do that because they knew it would destroy their cashew processing plants, their industry. Um, the World Bank and IMF insisted because that they said it would lift the price that the traders, the, the farmers, the peasant farmers mostly, could demand on the international market. Uh, well, Mozambique had no choice. They had to, in, in exchange for, I think at that point, some $650 million in loans, which, you know, is real money, even for Mozambique, or certainly for Mozambique. Uh, and just as they predicted, it ruined their cashew processing factories. It shut down, I think, like 10 of them. They had about 20, and it shut down about 10, uh, laying off about, uh, I think, 6,000 of their 12,000 workers, something like that. I might have the numbers wrong, but something dramatic uh, was the losses in terms of employment. Uh, and finally, of course, uh, the World Bank and IMF had to relent because it was ruining uh, the cashew uh, processing industry in Mozambique, which, one of their, was, which was one of their main sources of income, of exports. Um, and, and to make matters worse, it did not lift the prices that the farmers could demand on the international market, because what happened was there were a lot of foreign traders who just came in, middlemen, who came in to buy the, mark, buy the, 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 the nuts at uh, a low price and then sell them at a higher price. So it just basically uh, uh, introduced capitalism or introduce a deeper form of capitalism uh, and exploitation into the market. And so the, the, the point of the piece, the moral of the piece, was I was talking to a, uh, a brother in the uh, foreign ministry about the, what had happened. And I kept asking him, because I didn't understand, you know, <laughs> I'm a little slow on the uptake. I was especially slow then, I think. I kept asking him, why didn't the World Bank and IMF believe you? I mean, you guys are right here. You know your own industry and your own potential and your own uh, deficits. Why didn't they believe you? And I'll never forget, we were at the Seaside Cafe, this beautiful hotel in Maputo, and overlooking the Indian Ocean. And he took a sip of his coffee and sighed. And he said, I don't know, I guess because we didn't go to Harvard, right? And that's the whole point of the piece is how, you know, we have these people, the best and brightest. And what they've really done over the last 40 years in particular, although you could certainly date it back farther than that, but certainly over the last 40 years, they have led the global economy uh, to this state of ruin with their policies that are based on privileging them and their class, right? It, it, the system is not meant to respond to the needs and wants, particularly of black people, but certainly of, of the black working class anywhere in the world. And these people at Harvard have no interest in, in actually fixing our problems. They're trying to consolidate their own power. And we've done ourselves a terrible disservice all over the world by trusting them. I don't think I can repeat uh, what I said at the end of that story that I wrote for my Patreon page. But the moral of the story is that, you know, uh, much like the scene, if anyone uh, of a certain age remembers the uh, uh, Animal House movies uh, of the late 70s, where one of the uh, frat boys lends his car to his frat brothers and they wreck it. And the moral of that movie was when uh, the frat brother who told the sort of despondent uh, frat brother who had loaned his frat brothers his car, he says, you, you effed up. You trusted us. That's that's <laughs> us. Right. That's the black people in the United States and really all over the world. Right. Although although this is the key distinction, I'm not sure I really brought this home in my story. You see people in Mozambique and South Africa and around the world 
uh, black people and also working people in Argentina and Greece and Italy, you see them waking up to what they've done wrong. I'm not sure we quite comprehend that our best and brightest are actually our antagonists, right? They are actually opposed to us and to our progress. And so uh, we need to sort of like learn that lesson very fast because it's coming to get us again. And we're, we're, we're going to see, particularly now with the economy, I don't care what they say, the economy is in recession. Uh, uh, you know, we see rents going up all around the country, uh, sometimes, you know, by as much as, as, as you know, 100, 200 percent uh, in some places. And uh, these people who graduate from Harvard and go to Stanford and, you know, the lawyer, the elite lawyer, they're not going to be able to come up with answers to our problems. We, the people, have to jump in and fix our own problems. So do it yourself project. And we need to learn that lesson very, very quickly. And I think here's the thing, though, John, because, I mean, very recent history, and I'm not talking about 100 years ago, I'm talking about well within that time frame, working class people in certain countries literally have been screaming and organizing and wondering, when are y'all in the United States going to get that these so-called very smart people from these, uh, you know, ivory tower institutions uh, with their neoliberal policies, when are y'all going to get they're not your friends? Because, you know, the working class and peasant classes in, oh, I don't know, Chile, those folks have all the information that, that we could ever possibly need. If we didn't know about Mozambique, and then I understand that's probably a story that might be, you know, very limited and people wouldn't have, uh, even leftists might not have, you know, that level of information. But surely we know about Chile. And, and if we were not sure about the impacts of the policies from, you know, the Chicago boys, that Ivy League institution, institution, the University of Chicago, surely we know what the Harvard boys did in the former Soviet Union by trying to teach the Russians to be capitalists and what the Soviet people went through during that period of time and, and why they elected someone who was a little bit more antagonistic toward, toward the West in the person of Vladimir Putin, because you know what? They were sick and tired of Western capitalists coming over and trying to sell off their country in a fire sale for profit for these Ivy League institutions and their counterparts in Russia. So I, I feel like you know, not only to, to your piece are, you know, the the uh, uh, the crew is going to save America and certainly not the captains. But I think the crews of other countries have been, you know, hoping that we would at least read the cliff notes about their <laughs> mutinies for for years. And and I'm just is it is it me, John? Are we just not are, are we just missing the plot in these stories? Uh, is it taking us a little bit longer to get around to binging on the series? I, I don't I don't know what what do you think? has kept us from connecting these dots um, and, and getting us to a point where we're still kind of hanging our hopes that on something that may be something the Biden administration and his smart policy advisors will do in this latest piece of legislation will actually be beneficial. That's just a brilliant question. And, you know, it kind of brings us back. I know, I, I know, I'm sure that your listeners think I'm a one-trick pony, but it really is the answer to everything, which is, 
You know, th this the, the difference between what's happening in Chile, what's happening in Argentina right now, where people are in the streets every day demanding very specific things in South Africa, demanding very specific things, a national bank, right? Why aren't we doing that? We need a national bank in the United States. The difference is the difference between capitalism and racial capitalism, right? When you have uh, this war of narratives in which you can assign blame to this group of people who frankly had nothing to do, no, that's not true. We did have something to do with it. And that's the point, right? We, black people, especially the radical black politician, po politi politics, which you represent, Jackie, right? Uh, Sean as well. That has been exiled, banished from the conversation particularly for the last 40 years, dating back to, you know, the Panthers and, and, and their influence on white leftists like the weather underground, right? And it's not whether or not you, it's not whether you agree with their tactics or not. The point is that the message from the Panthers, from this radical black political tradition, was being disseminated throughout the country, right? People were learning, understanding, and moving, right? That's the danger. That's what they have sought to to diminish, to degrade, to devalue, to exile, right? That to, to, to convince the, the rest of the nation that we, black people, particularly those radical blacks, right? Who are talking about, you know, power for workers. We're talking about why do we do 100% of the work and only get 40% of the wages? Like us people, right? We're the ones who have traditionally led that fight. We have been exiled systematically, right? Deliberately by this by this Harvard elite, this, this uh, Stanford elite, these these technocrats, uh, and, and, and frankly, we have to be honest, by rednecks like Joe and Joe Biden, right? They, they have collaborated to excel in the conversation because I heard uh, 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 Dr. Frank Wilderson once describe a conversation he had with the Zapatistas in Mexico. Uh, and they described for him, uh, he asked them why were they so loathed by the uh, Mexican elite? And the Zapatistas answered, because we have the answers for everything, right? You can say that about the radical black tradition, right? Uh, not Obama, not Kamala Harris, right? But that radical black political tradition that 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 is the progeny of Malcolm X, particularly, right? Other people too, but particularly of Malcolm X, this idea of of of, of knowledge as the base of liberation. That idea comes from Malcolm, and not just knowledge, but self knowledge, right? Uh, much of that comes from Malcolm. And so they've exiled that. They've banished that from our conversation. They've banished us from the conversation. And so people are just rudderless, right? They think, you know, much like like much like uh, uh, Ronald Reagan told them that we can't have nice things because of, you know, some welfare mothers in Chicago who are driving Cadillacs, right? Uh, and so we just got this, we've been dumbed down. There's no other way to put it. And um, we we need to sort of, re-engage the world and this, this world of ideas and not just sort of accept these identities and these fates that have been assigned to us by this elite, our so-called best and brightest. Absolutely. And then it reminds me of <clears throat> something that Kwame Ture was fond of saying, that capitalism doesn't just exploit your labor. It also seeks to confound your thinking. And it's absolutely true that um, there is a well-oiled, well-organized, uh, centralized um, capitalist propaganda machine that uh, is always aimed squarely at the popular consciousness of the people in the United States. That's why we say on the show 
that uh, the people of the U.S. are the most propagandized people in the world. And they're really, really good at it. Uh, they've had uh, a lot of practice. And so when you talk about these uh, oppositional politics, these truly oppositional politics, uh, uh, such as represented by the Panthers and groups like that, a politic that um, centers of uh, the root issue of oppression and exploitation in the capitalist system itself, you know, that's the reason why you don't hear uh, these kinds of politics uh, on the the mainstream airwaves or in these mainstream platforms, because to do so would be a fundamental challenge to uh, the power and wealth of the capitalist class who benefit from our suffering. And see, even in saying that, I think sort of reminds us and roots us in the importance of having this kind of class analysis. And a part of that, a part of why that is important is to know what side you're on. Uh, particularly, I think, within uh, the case of race, you know, like if we talk about black folks. And so if you don't have a class analysis, you can mess around and start thinking that, you know, Oprah Winfrey is your comrade or uh, Michael Johnson or, or Bob Johnson or any of these rich Negroes they got running around. Right. We fundamentally do not have the same material interests as these people. And the fact of our common blackness uh, uh, does not change that material fact. And so this is why I think that this uh, kind of politic is uh, so uh, important, John, and why, uh, uh, from the standpoint of uh, the capitalist class, it's important to silence it. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour. On that note, here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., we'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lutman continue to be joined by John Jeter. And we have a caller on the line here, Tarif. Tell us what's on your mind. Thank you all for taking my call. First, I'd like, like to say free Julian Assange. He's very important. Uh, we're talking about the raid that happened like a week ago to the African People's Socialist Party. It's, they're pushing uh, reparations, which is a good thing. The uh, FBI said that they were trying to they were the uh, African People's Socialist Party was trying to connect themselves to Russia, but that's a lie. It was based on a misdirection. Um, it, it, uh, what the African People's Socialist Party have to do, and other reparation groups, civil rights groups, they have to um, uh, connect with the African continent. Uh, now Africa is trying to push for reparations. The Ghana president last week was talking about that. Once we connect with them on a geopolitical um, stays, then our voices will become stronger. If we don't do that, then we just be continue to be isolated, just playing local politics. But if we can do that, if we can have a, um, um, a speech at the, the UN table or at the BRICS table, because the BRICS is becoming stronger and stronger because the rise of China and uh, uh, Russia, because the narrative is, uh, is starting to become stronger, that would be good. So please 
I hope one day the African People's Socialist Party will come on y'all show and speak, and also they can connect with Africa, and we can make one day the, uh, the reparations become real one day. Thank you. That's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Well, thank you, Tarif. Excuse me. Thank you, Tarif, for calling in. Appreciate you doing that. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, John Jeter, your thoughts? I agree with him completely. Uh, What we what we need, uh, and and of course, the raid on the African uh, Socialist Party and St. Louis was um, uh, a measure that was grounded in repression. uh, You know, uh, and 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 again, manufacturing this this narrative uh, that that uh, assigns blame to the to the to the people who. You know, Vladimir Putin has never called me the N-word, right? Uh, and and or at least not that I know. <laughs> or sorry, but put it this way, he certainly never denied me a job or, or raised my rent. And so, uh, you know, this is um, again part of that war of narratives. And what the only antidote, the kryptonite, is for Black people to organize, and we have to do it ourselves. No one's going to save us. It's going to be us moving. Uh, as Fred Hampton would say, on the pigs, on this system, and and demanding and 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 articulating a vision for America, in which Black people are finally free from the post of the afterlife of slavery, where we, if we, if not citizens, we become at least sovereign people who, uh, uh, you know, for the most part, we have 42 million African Americans whose futures, everything about us, we serve at the existence of white people. Right. How much we pay for rent, whether we're free, uh, where we work, what what we make it's all determined by white people. So what we need is a, a, a phrase that, you know, people of a certain age will remember. But very few people here these days, which is we need self-determination. Right. And that it can only be done if we organize and move on this system and demand it. Jackie Lukeman, your thoughts. Yeah. You know, I, I, too, agree. And I and I think this is a, an important point in the struggle for reparations, not just in this country, but around the world, because what's going on in Colombia? We just talked about this yesterday, where uh, not just Afro-Colombian people, Afro-descended people in Colombia, but also indigenous people in Colombia and in the Americas, all around Latin America, they all kind of got together. And in between salsa dancing as... Uh, our brother uh, Anthony Rogers, Anthony Rogers Wright, made me jealous. He had just had to say <laughs> that they were talking about these weighty, meaty, important international solidarity, Pan Africanist issues in between salsa dancing at the inauguration <laughs> after party. Mad, I'm hating, I'm mad. But anyway, they're having a great time without you. Having a great time without <laughs> me. Doggone it! But. This is going on all around the diaspora. We we have been conditioned to believe that, you know, those folks in the rest of the world in in the rest of the diaspora want nothing to do with us. And that has never, ever been the case. And I think that because we are seeing more left-leaning governments take power that uh, reflect more representation of Afro-descended and indigenous people in these countries, we're seeing more positive movement toward uh, a global coalescing of these reparation struggles. And I I think this is one of those strike while the moments is hot uh, historical moments, uh, John. And I'm wondering if you are kind of feeling the same way about this moment, too. 
Oh, no question. That's a great point. And, I, you know, th- th- what they realize, I think, in much of the uh, certainly in the, in the uh, south of the border, uh, whether it's in Mexico, whether it's in Venezuela or Colombia, what they realize is something that largely escapes uh, the American population on the whole, which is that um, uh, uh, it, within these countries, the political struggle is a struggle between the people who built uh, the Americas and the people who own the Americas, right? The indigenous and black people built the Americas, whether that's in Venezuela, whether that's in uh, 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 Mexico, whether that's in the United States, and it's the European settlers who own the Americas. And they fully realized that in Colombia, right? They fully realized that in Venezuela, which was really a black, the Bolivarian Revolution was very much a black-led revolution, right? Uh, and Hugo Chavez realized that. And I think uh, what we're going to see in Brazil, I think there's going to probably be some attempts at some very tricky business after the vote, but I think Lula's going to win this thing. And I suspect, I don't know, I don't speak Portuguese and I don't know Lula personally, but I suspect that Lula recognizes that in his first term, uh, his first two terms in office, that what he did wrong was he did not, like Hugo Chavez, he didn't run towards the black population, right? Which in Brazil is larger than any black population outside of Nigeria, I believe. Uh, and I think, I think, I don't know this, but I suspect he's going to correct this or try to correct this this time, right? To to build a black movement, right, that can come to his rescue if he delivers the goods to them or begins to deliver the goods to them. This is something we can tap into if only we can raise our own consciousness, right? This is happening. Um, the the indigenous movement in Bolivia, the the, the you know the the movement in in almost completely white countries like. Uh, Chile and Argentina, but still they're workers' movements, and these people understand that this is a class struggle, right? And that race and racism plays a very destructive role in the class struggle. If we could just tap into these movements to to, to make common ground, to break a bread with these people and have some understanding, there's a, there's a province, uh, I think it's a province, an entire province in Mexico, I cannot remember which one it is, but I think they did this like 10 years ago. They defunded the police. They have citizens police, right? And from everything I understand, it works fine. It worked. People are much more satisfied with this citizens-led police force than they were with this very corrupt, uh, if that rings the bell to any Americans, this very corrupt police force they had previously. And so there are lessons that we can learn if we kind of humble ourselves, educate ourselves, and and raise our consciousness and it's just it's really it's the low-hanging fruit that's just sitting there waiting to be snatched uh but we have to sort of recognize that it's there yeah definitely and you know uh this is precisely where i wanted to go next with our conversation john because we were talking about um the raid on the uh yuhuru movement and I i tend to think that this kind of repression of real oppositional politics, the same oppositional politics that we were talking about that have been silenced uh, a little earlier on. That repression, I think, is part and parcel of these same contradictions of the capitalist system and really the decline of the capitalist system that uh, uh, is sort of uh, at the root of a lot of what we're talking about today. Because it was a completely, you know, flimsy and ridiculous uh, sort of thing that uh, was that that justified that raid. And it is and we should see that raid, I think, as another consequence of the Russiagate myth. 
We can't lose sight of that. We are still living with the consequences of this lie that was propagated by uh, uh, the Clinton campaign that had the dual purpose of, you know, sort of continuing uh, the United States's attacks on Russia, which is, you know, uh, historic, uh, both in terms of the Russian Federation and uh, the Soviet Union and, you know, against the Vladimir Putin as an individual. And it also provided a ready made excuse for why this, you know, tenured, proven imperialist figure in uh, Hillary Clinton was defeated by this swaggering bigot named Donald J. Trump. Uh, who very likely could make a play again for the White House in two years. And if not him, I suspect it will be someone very much in his cast, be it uh, uh, DeSantis down in Florida or someone like that. But the fact of the matter is this, 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 this baseless idea that the Russians, whatever that means, the Russian government, the, the millions upon millions of Russian people, the Russians are trying to attack the United States for some reason, you know, that, that, that still hasn't been made clear why they would want to do that, particularly given they would have everything to gain by having good relations with the U.S. And that's precisely what Putin tried to do early on in his presidency. But the Russians, whatever, they hate, they hate um, uh, the United States, just like, you know, uh, people in the Middle East hated us for our freedom, uh, not because of what imperialism has done to the region, right? So they, they, they hate the United States and they're going to, uh, I guess, infiltrate the country by, you know, knowing people in, in a black socialist revolutionary party. Like it just like the basic logic of it just just doesn't shake out. Right. But see, neither does the logic of Russiagate as we know it in general. You know what I mean? And so the thing is, Jackie, the whole issue of it is really in service to imperialism itself. Russiagate, I think, at base, was a thought-killing exercise. Yes. Right? Yes. That was yes. designed to prime the American people for a ramping up of a U.S. attack on Russia that we now see playing out in the form of a proxy war in Ukraine that the people of the U.S. are increasingly feeling less sentimental about because it's hitting them in their pocket. Oh, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> just just looking at the number of people in between this studio and my dialysis center up in Northwest that still have the Ukrainian flag flying outside. Like, I have never seen as, as many conflicts as have been going on around the world uh, over the past few years. I ain't never seen anybody put a Syrian flag out, hang out, you know, side out of their house. I've never seen anybody hang a Nigerian flag out of their house. Nobody was in solidarity with the Nigerian people <laughs> protesting against their government. We sure have not seen people hanging a Palestinian flag anywhere at all ever for any reason whatsoever no matter how, no matter how many people the Israeli government with those US weapons kill but but suddenly people have this this very sheepdogish blanket dogged devotion to this narrative that you're right Sean was so well curated and it was so craftily done it was craftily done but it was also done with like you know the bludgeon of the 24 hour news cycle right but in it was literally john 
the U.S. corporate media repeating a single lie over and over and over again with no substantiation whatsoever, completely devoid of any facts. And when the facts were raised, people were so conditioned to be uh, uh, outraged that another country could possibly want to come in and subvert the democracy in this country. I can't even say that without laughing because there is yeah, no democracy ridiculous. in this country. Um, and, and, and just as an aside, y'all, I got to say, if the best that Russia or any country can do in affecting anything in this country in regard to elections are concerned is posting some Facebook ads for shoes and some Bernie, Buff Bernie, uh, Bernie (laughs) rainbow bikini Facebook. If that's the best Vladimir Putin and the KGB could do, well, shame on them. Goodness gracious. Where's all that terrifying spy craft that, that, you know, the KGB's reputation was propped up on? You you know what I'm saying? Complete aside. But but just the fact that the amateurish but crafty and and incessant Russiagate campaign was so successful that they actually stopped saying the word Russiagate and they just let it take on the life that they wanted it to take on so that folks are in support of this proxy war against Russia that the you know US has started in Ukraine and now John has has set up the environment where if the United States were to decide hey let's do the same thing in Taiwan well folks are just they'll just go right along with it why because the whole Russia gate thing worked so very well, it's it's a terrifying time to be in to see how easily so many people have been. I don't think propagandized is the right word anymore. Brainwashed in yeah, this country. Yeah. yeah, that that's it. And and I don't know how we get out of this period without a serious jolt to the consciousness of people to so that they can see that. Everything that they believe has indeed been a lie, but I don't even know what that would be at this point, John. Well, I, you know, I, I think I think you're spot on. I, you know, this whole project of the United States is 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 oriented, is organized around killing uh, uh, the typical American's political imagination. That's what it means to exile this radical black polity, right? Uh, it reminds me, Sean, since you mentioned Kwame Ture earlier. Uh, what Kwame Ture used to say, that Americans don't even think. They just respond to stimuli. That's what we're doing, right? When we talk about uh, Russiagate and, you know, we raid uh, Uhuru's uh, uh, home, uh, uh, Omali, uh, Chairman Omali's home uh, in St. Louis because he's conspiring with Russians. The Russians aren't our problem. They're, they're not the source of our discontent. The source of our discontent, uh, and, and this will strike many people as odd, maybe even uh, apocryphal, but I guarantee you it's true. The source of our discontent in the most uh, immediate sense, in the last 10 years certainly, has been that the Federal Reserve has been printing money to make up for the fact that Americans no longer have enough money 
to stimulate, no longer have enough buying power, no longer have, no longer have enough money to stimulate a demand economy. And so the central bank has been printing that money. Now, you don't have to be an economist to understand that that's unsustainable, right? But they don't want you to know that. And, and by the way, the, what would cause that crisis, what caused this collapse of our economy in the Great Recession was this subprime mortgage, which are, which are fraudulent loans. That's not my term. That's the FBI's term. Fraudulent loans, subprime loans, predatory lending, which targeted what group of people? African-Americans. An African-American woman was more likely to get a subprime loan than any other uh, a group uh, uh, of, of borrower in the in the United States. But they don't want you to know that. They want to, re, to sort of just have you respond to this stimulus they put out there. You know, it was during the Cold War. And they don't have the imagination themselves, right? Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton, they just talk to each other. They talk to themselves and Paul Begala and they don't talk to any real people. They don't understand what's really going on out in the country or in the world. Uh, but the problem is this. This is their very real problem, right? Vladimir Putin and the Russian people, and I don't mean, I, I don't mean to uh, valorize the, uh, Vladimir Putin, right? But I respect him. And he's clearly a smart man, right? And he does have political imagination. And that's why he's winning handling this war against Ukraine. They are, uh, Ukraine is taking somewhere in the order of two to 300 casualties per day, according to several reports I've heard, right? Russia's not taking that kind of, uh, they're not taking those kinds of hits, right? Uh, the Russian economy is, is, is booming, right? It's got some problems, but it's booming. Germany is in trouble, right? The, the, the gas imports there has really, is constricting their economy. The United States is in recession. China has some problems, but they still have a lot more flexibility in terms of their economy and what they can do uh, than the United States. And so what you have is a situation where we're in this bubble in the United States, but no one else is in it. And so you've got Anthony Blinken going to Africa, telling Africans, you know, hey, we, we got your back. And, and the brothers in Africa are like, yeah, whatever, bro. We heard this before, <laughs> right? And now it's a multipolar world, and they're, or it's becoming that, right? And they're saying, hey, you know, um, maybe we could do some deals in rubles. Maybe we could do some deals in yuan, right? And that's, um, that's the piece they resist on for the United States because when we can no longer demand that people buy our goods in dollars, we're in trouble because we don't make anything of value. So our control of the United States dollar means everything, and that's ending. That's coming to an end, right? It won't be abrupt. It'll be slow. It'll be gradual. But that's going to cut into our already crippling economic uh, problems. And um, we really need a revolution of values and a revolution of understanding. And uh, as always, the people who can lead that are the most oppressed people. That's the black working class. Yeah, we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 
0252113201320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. John Jeter is here. And we have a caller on the line here. Mo, tell us what's on your mind. Yes, uh, thanks for taking my call. You know, I uh, had the pleasure, or, uh, you know, you read the liner notes of the Thelonious Monk album playing Duke Ellington. Uh, Duke Ellington response to the Thelonious Monk album. He said, you know, if I had to evolve later on, that's how my music would sound. And I'm saying that in response to uh, your guest, and that is, uh, at least from our generation, I've said this and I will continue to say this, that uh, John Jeter is the next step or the evolution of Glenn Ford. So it's really fitting that he had that piece uh, that he had written, which I read uh, in Black Agenda Report. So, you know, we, I'm glad, uh, Jackie, you named names as well as you, uh, Sean, but it's my contention that uh, what adds even more confusion to the pot is that we have a lot of right-wing folks on the left, mm. you know, and that confuses things. You know, you look at, uh, 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 you know, you have many within this quote-unquote uh, ADOS movement, and you have uh, the likes of uh, Karen Hunter and, uh, uh, you know, Greg Carr and, and uh, I, I think that we really need to be clear because at the end of the day, the folks that I mentioned are still capitalists. And uh, it, it is, I think, that we need to do maybe uh, a much better job of pointing out those people that will, pro, quote unquote, proclaim to be our allies. But at the end of the day, they aren't. But, you know, I'll, I'll stop there. And as I said all along, you guys do great work, continue to do great work. And, uh, and John, it's, it's always a pleasure to hear you on the radio. Take care. Bye now. Thank you, Mo. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. You know, the interesting thing about um, the ADOS folks is that I think reparations is kind of, it's seen as like a left-wing, like, topic or, or project. And but but ADOS, as you're pointing out, I mean, it is definitely fundamentally reactionary. Uh, you know what I mean? And then even with like Dr. Carr, I mean, I see him as more of, of a liberal, but I definitely take your point. Uh, but John Jeter, your thoughts. Well, first of all, I have to thank the brother for comparing me to Glenn Ford. I, I can't imagine <laughs> a better compliment because uh, Glenn was one of my heroes, He's still one of my heroes. Uh, but secondly, yeah, I, I do take his point. I think uh, really the real trick for us is to identify the, the, the knowledge that's being produced, the solutions to our problems. Uh, and, and frankly, you know, as I tried to write in my piece, my Patreon piece, that's going to come from us. It's going to come from the grassroots. It's going to come from the people who actually experience the violence and the dispossession uh, imposed by this European settler colonial state uh, and not by, and I, I respect Dr. Carr, you know, but I don't think he's got uh, our, our, our solutions in the most uh, uh, molecular level. I don't think he's got the, the answers to our problems. Um, and some of the other people, I think, are, don't have any of our um, uh, any of the answers to our problems. So, yeah, I, I, I agree with him completely. Um, and I, I thank him again for his comparing me to the great, the late, great uh, Glenn Ford. Jackie Lugman, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I can't say that I disagree with that comparison. And I, and I, I got to say, 
the first time I met Glenn, I was I was shocked at first of all by how short he was. <laughs> like the and then then I, I was shocked by the voice that came out of that man's but then he he was just the nicest, most accommodating, you know, most just I had so much to learn from him. He he was just so amazing um, and and very grateful to have been anywhere in that brother's sphere for sure. You know, but this thing about these folks that we just mentioned, I think the fact that a part of their solution still after everything that we talked about, all of the history, all of the current um, uh, exploitations and violations that the system continues to perpetuate under uh, Joseph Biden, who's supposed to be the guy that was supposed to deliver us from evil Trumpism. And here Biden is throwing black folks under the bus in so many different ways that, you know, sh- we should have seen coming. Um, because he's that's who he is. He's done it before. I think the thing that that strikes me about these folks is that not only are they capitalists, but their solutions are still tied to this system, which I think if people don't get the, the, the problem with capitalism, I think that ought to be that is like the clue. Right. That is like if you if we have people still running around telling folks that the number one thing we can do to address the problems that we all face is to make sure we vote. Oh, alarm bells right there. Not not to say that voting is not important and it should not be used as a tool in the revolutionary toolbox. But if you're not going to use voting in a revolutionary way to vote for revolutionary people, then all you're doing is propping up this system, right? And it seems to me that for some of us on the left, I think because, well, I don't, I don't know. I don't know, Sean. I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to, um, I don't want to guess at people's intent. Because I, I know that I personally don't like, you know, like the online uh, debate culture. I I just don't like doing it. I don't like calling people out just for the sake of calling people out. That's just my thing. But I, I think that part of the issue on the left with some of us is that we don't make it that plain about the way some of these folks who, you know, that, that they are still very much uh, invested in the system because they continue to present propping up this system as a solution to all these problems. We, you know what I mean? We can, we can agree on all of the problems until we get to the part where we ask, well, what do we do? And where you and I and John and, you know, other radical folks are saying organize for socialism, you know, and the overthrow of this capitalist system, those folks are still like, well, we've got to vote because, (laughs) you know, for whatever their because is. And I, and I think we, we really need to get down to just the brass tacks of when we're having a conversation about these folks, I think before we even get to the capitalism part, I think it, we really just need to make it clear that these people are still very invested in upholding this system as it exists. That, that really is it. And there's no solution in that, Sean. And 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 I I think we can go from there. 
Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, you know, I would say that the reason why you're not into online debate culture, Jackie, is because you're like an organizer who has like far better things to do. You know what I mean? And uh, I say it all the time. I think there's a problem with these individuals on social media who tend to not be rooted in organizations or rooted in movement and who really just kind of exist to give their opinions and build their platform, whether it's their Twitter page or their podcast or their Twitch stream or their YouTube or, or whatever it is. They're not trying to build a movement. They're just trying to build an audience. But see, when you're just sort of functioning for yourself in your own platform uh, and not for an organization or a movement, well, then there's nobody there to hold you accountable. And there's no sort of counterweight to some of the things you do, because, you know, regardless of the, you know, revolutionary tinge to your pronouncements, you're basically uh, uh, self-interested. Right. And I feel like a lot of the right wing trends that we see on different aspects of the U.S. left, frankly, come from just a very poor analysis of class and a poor analysis in general. It's just like this whole thing with Donald Trump being raided by the FBI and uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene talking about defund uh, uh, the FBI. And you have people on the so-called left talking about, yeah, we got to uh, uh, ride this wave and take advantage of the mo What are you talking about? What, what are you talking like? What, what do you mean ride this wave? You want to be in coalition with reactionaries? Do you think do you really think that we want the same thing? Listen, we've been talking about the FBI today, right? The, the, this raid on Donald Trump and really so much of what is happening with Trump right now, I think, is an expression of different contradictions that are happening in different wings of the ruling class in this country. And then you look at the raid, for instance, on the, the, the Yahoo's, and that is clearly just naked repression against any kind of oppositional um, a, a politic in the U.S. and it's trying to set the stage for more such behavior. These two things are not the same. You see what I mean? And so just, you know, just that basic level of clarity is uh, just just seems like it's missing from uh, the way a lot of people are thinking about this. I mean, you look at Marjorie Taylor Greene. This is the same woman who who posts an ad, a video ad that you can still see on her YouTube page, where she has an automatic weapon, uh, firing it at a at at the word socialism. She's literally shooting a word that says socialism. You don't think that if the Trumpists controlled the FBI, that they wouldn't use it to crush the left? Like I mean, I mean, did we? I mean, see, and this is why a critical analysis of these things is so important. We can't operate on these knee jerk superficial, emotional uh, uh, responses to things. And I'm just going to keep it real. If you're someone, because I re th th there's like an element of these people who seem to always want to jump at the opportunity to like organize with racists and reactionaries. And I'll never understand it. I'll never understand that. Now, it's true that when we're organizing amongst our class, we will have to grapple with different backwards tendencies. That's a result of being indoctrinated by this system. But struggling with someone over an incorrect position and trying to stand next to someone who would just as soon throw you out of a helicopter as say hello is just not the same project. You feel me? 
And it just really is wild that that kind of thing even has to be explained, John. You know what I mean? But this is what we're dealing with. And to me, it's also a reminder about how even folks who are on the left are still susceptible to this propaganda that we're uh, uh, talking about. And then the kind of, you know, ego stroking that social media allows gives it a whole other level. But see, that's why we have to have this very, I think, kind of sober and sophisticated and uh, uh, well-studied and researched way of thinking about so many of these issues, because I think that could go a long way. And what I'm describing, of course, is political education. And that always, I think, goes a long way from keeping us from arriving at these conclusions that simply will not help us move forward. Yeah, I I certainly agree. I think that uh, there's so much that we can learn from our brothers in South Africa, in Brazil, in Venezuela, uh, in Colombia, uh, and not just our brothers, but you know our our indigenous brothers in Mexico, in Guatemala, and Bolivia, and we need that knowledge production and that conversation that's very full throated, and not just this sort of rehashing of old ideas that Russia is the problem, that socialism is the problem. We need to you know sort of revisit the past in terms of of, of where we made progress, right? But how do we sort of adopt that to the present day? That's really the question. Uh, we need to study what happened in Chicago in 1983 when they elected a city that's only a third black elected the first black mayor and the progress he made in the first four years in office before he dropped dead of a heart attack, unfortunately, Harold Washington. We need to revisit why they did that, how they did that, and see how we can adopt that to today uh, in terms of if we're going to have an electoral strategy instead of just voting for whatever Democrat the Democrats tell us to vote for. Um, we're in a lot of trouble. We really are. This is an existential crisis that black people face in particular. And uh, we're going to need not just sort of liberal ideas or reformist ideas. We need radical transformation of, Amer- of the American society. Yeah, that's a fact. And one quick thing I wanted to say, because you mentioned uh, the racial character of the Bolivarian Revolution earlier in the show. And, you know, I feel like that came out in in stark relief um, uh, during the height of that last regime change attempt. And, like, you literally saw, just in the photos of the events, that, you know, the Wang Guaido faction, these were clearly uh, uh, white and more economically well-off people. Well, then if you look at the pro-Maduro rallies, I mean, these are these are black people, these are indigenous people, these are uh, the popular classes that benefited from the Bolivarian Revolution. And uh, it, it isn't precisely the same conditions here in the United States, but certainly as we've been saying, emanates from these same institutions of colonialism and genocide and slavery and uh, today imperialism. And so I agree that not only should we learn from these different uh, movements that are happening today, we should learn from the revolutions of the past, not simply glory in their achievements, but see what we can glean from it the good and the bad. And I think in that way, along with building those international connections with movements, uh, will go quite a ways to help us strike a blow against the international ruling class that wants to keep us all shackled. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Enemies Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, John Jeter, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with all new episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.